You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Good morning, everybody. My name is Luke, and I'm the pastor here, City on a Hill, Melbourne West, and when it is all under control. So how about we pray as we get into God's Word? Father God, we want to thank you for your Word. We thank you that you teach us and train us and lead us. I pray, Lord, that you will speak to us today, that your Spirit will soften our hearts to receive your truth and to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been waiting for today. Uh, if you've been tracking with us over the last couple of months, we've been going through the book of Exodus, and Exodus is this book that describes this great showdown 
between good and evil, the Egyptians and the Israelites, between Pharaoh and God. And up till now, it might have felt like evil was winning. It feels like God's people are just continually being oppressed. But today, the tide turns. Today is the moment where we see God assert himself against those who would oppose him. God had, of course, chosen his people, the Israelites, uh, many generations before. We see this in the book of Genesis. Genesis 12 verse 2, God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And at the start of Exodus, it looks like that is happening. We're told in chapter 1 verse 7 that the people of, uh, of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. They're seeing God's promises come true. But then we see the Egyptians oppose this. Their growth of the Israelites panics them, and so they decide that they will try to enslave them. And in doing so, they're setting themselves against God. And God has promised to do something about it. Exodus 3, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, he says to his people, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. God is going to do something. God is going to rescue them. And yet still there is a delay and tells Pharaoh to let them go. And Pharaoh decides that he needs to double their workload. They've got too much time to think. They want to be free and so I need to crush them even further. And so he doubles their workload. And this breaks the Israelites. They'd allowed themselves to hope, to imagine that God might come through for them and it feels like it's further away than ever. But as we saw last week, this also is part of God's plan. Chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. God has essentially been waiting for this moment to show his true greatness, the greatness of his power. And so today he will assert his power over Pharaoh and show his people that he has heard, that he does know, that he does care, and he will rescue them. That's because today we're looking at the plagues of Egypt from Exodus 7 to 10. I'd love to go through this whole passage, but there's actually four chapters and time limits me. So what I want to do is kind of sketch out the basic elements of the narrative and then spend more time thinking through the themes that tie it all together. Uh, thankfully, you get a bit of a feel for the drama from our Bible reading. I know you're probably kind of familiar with it anyway. Even if you haven't read the Bible much, you've probably seen the Ten Commandments or Prince of Egypt. And so you know the basic plot line. Basically, what happens again and again, God sends Moses in to Pharaoh to say, to, to demand, let my people go, and warns him that there will be consequences if he doesn't listen. Chapter 8, verse 1 is typical. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country. Repeatedly, Pharaoh ignores this until the plague comes and he starts begging, pleading for mercy, promising that he'll do the right thing and he'll let the people go. But as soon as God relents, he changes his mind. He hardens his heart. We're told again and again that Pharaoh hardened his heart. In chapter 8, verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Chapter 9, verse 34, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He knows what the right thing is that he should do. He knows what God is asking him to do, but he refuses to do it. He goes against that and he hardens his conscience so he doesn't feel it. And so the cycle repeats again and again. First of all, we see 
water turned to blood, blood throughout all the land of Egypt, destroying, affecting all the water that was so important for a a desert country. Then a swarm of frogs comes everywhere in the homes of the Egyptians, in their bedrooms, their beds, their ovens, their kneading bowls, everywhere. Then they're tormented by insects, gnats as numerous as the dust of the ground, then flies that swarm people and ruin the land. The fifth plague sees all the livestock in the land destroyed. Horses and donkeys, camels and herds all die. Then boils break out on the skin of the Egyptians. The seventh plague sees judgment come from the sky, a mighty thunderstorm, hail and fire flashing continually, we're told in chapter 9, verse 24. Very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And it destroys everything that's left exposed, both man and beast, plant and tree. If anything is left, it's taken by the next plague, a great swarm, a great army of locusts that cover the face of the land. Chapter 10, verse 15, not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. And then the ninth plague, an unnerving, eerie, overwhelming darkness that comes suddenly and lasts for three days. There's subtle differences between the narratives that each plague but that's the basic plot line and we're probably quite familiar with it. I'd urge you to read it during the week. It's, a, it's an amazing story and there's so much in it. But what I want to ask today is what exactly is the point of it? Why does this all happen? What is God trying to tell us through it? What's the message for us? I think we get a hint throughout the passage. You'll notice a phrase that repeats itself continually. God says he's doing this, that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God, or chapter 9, verse 14, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. This is a message for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Think back to how this all started. I remember when Moses first goes to confront Pharaoh, and Pharaoh just says, well, who's the Lord? I don't know who he is. I don't care about him. He's dismissive, doesn't care about it. And now God will show him who he is. He'll show him why he should listen. But it's not just a message for Pharaoh, it's a message for Moses and the Israelites. Because as we've seen over the last few weeks, they're starting to doubt God as well. They've heard about this God, the God of their fathers, the God of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They've heard that he's powerful, but they're starting to wonder if that's true. Does he really care? But in chapter 10, God says, I'm doing this so that you may know that I am the Lord so that you can tell your sons and your grandsons, I'm going to show you what I'm like, what, how I'm powerful. And it's also a message for us. Exodus 9 verse 16, God says to Pharaoh, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God is doing this. Everything that happens in chapter 7 to 10 is for everyone throughout the world in every time. So this is a message for us as well. Tim Chester, the Bible commentator, summarises, the plagues are an act of revelation. God sends them so that people might know that he is the Lord, that there is no one else like him and that his name might be revealed in all the earth. So God gives us these chapters to show us who he is 
And I think he's inviting us to see three key things here about who he is. The first thing is this, that he is the one true God. You see, Pharaoh's initial response to Yahweh's intervention in his life is kind of understandable. Uh, In the ancient world, uh, people believed there were many, many gods and that each god was kind of local and parochial. Uh, Each country had their own gods and they would uh, help that particular country. And their power, though, was limited to that country as well. They kind of had a territorial limit. And so when Moses says, right, God, Yahweh, that my God, the Israelite God, demands that you let the people go, he's kind of, he's both bemused and kind of offended and unconcerned. He's offended because he's like, who is this God to come and speak to me? This is my country. I have my gods. He's got no right here. But he's also unconcerned. Because remember, Pharaoh and the Egyptians rule over the Israelites. They've got total control over them. So they figure that the Israelite gods are weak and incapable. And at first, it looks like that's true. You'll notice in the first, if you read through, you'll notice the first few plagues, uh, the Egyptian magicians can actually do the same thing. So God turns the water of the Nile into blood and they're able to turn water into blood. God sends frogs, they're able to do frogs as well. But by the third plague, they start to see that they're unable to do it. And we read in 8 verse 19, Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. They recognise for the first time, that they're out of their league, that this is someone they can't match. They've served their own gods. They seem to have power from their own gods. doesn't seem like the magicians are just doing this out of sleight of hand. There's some demonic power that seems to be at work within them. But now they see that they've met their match, that there is someone else, that God is different. And through the course of the plagues, God shows that he is the one true God. You see, you can actually see each one of the plagues as kind of like a direct attack on a different Egyptian god. Each one, it feels like God is taking on a specific god and showing that he is greater than that god. So with the first plague, for instance, he exposes Harpy. Harpy was the god who the Egyptians believed provided them with fresh water. So God turns the Nile from fresh water to blood And Harpy is impotent. He can't turn that back. He can't protect them. When God sends frogs with the second plague, he shows his superiority to Hex, the goddess the Egyptians believe controlled the frogs. And so it goes on. When the gnats and the flies swarmed over the land, the Egyptians probably prayed to Kepa, the insect god, but Kepa was unable to help them. When boils covered their bodies, they probably prayed, cried out to Imhotep, the god of medicine among the Egyptians. But he can't soothe their problems. And so on and so on. God shows his superiority to specific gods. And perhaps most significant of all is this final plague, the plague of darkness. Because here Yahweh is overthrowing the greatest of all the Egyptian gods, Amon Re the sun god. You see, in the Egyptian world, Amon-Re was the best god, the biggest god. He said of himself, I am the great god who came into being of himself. 
he who created his own names, he who has no opponent among the gods. He sees himself as the great God and the people would sing about him. You are the unique God. There is none besides you. You mould the earth to your wish, you and you alone. Philip Ryken explains that every morning the rising of the sun in the east reaffirmed the life-giving power of Amon Re. Sunset represented death in the underworld, but the rise of Amon Re offered the hope of resurrection. But now, in this last plague, even Amon Re, the great God, their great God, is overcome for three whole days, is muted, proven to be weak. Even the most powerful God cannot stand before Yahweh. Pharaoh imagined that Yahweh had no jurisdiction in Egypt, but God is mussing in on their territory. And this is a message for us too, because he remains the one true God today. You'll notice in this passage that God's power extends over everything and everyone. You'll notice that the Egyptian gods sort of have portfolios. Some look after frogs. I feel like that's a pretty lame portfolio. (laughs) Others look after the sun. That's much more impressive. But God looks after all of those things. He sends the plagues from the sky, from the sea, from the land. He has complete power. In fact, he even has power over human hearts. We're told repeatedly that Pharaoh hardens his heart, but then towards the end of the narrative, we're told that God hardens his heart as well. So God has power over humanity as well. There's something profound about this God. Throughout these passages, we see that he is the creator, ruling his creation. And it's the same for us today. You see, we live in a culture where we're told constantly that it doesn't matter what God we serve, that there's loads of gods. You can just kind of pick whichever one you want. And we like that idea. We like the idea that to get to God, we're all just going up the same mountain. We're taking a different route perhaps, but we'll all end up there at the same spot at the end. But surely this passage says that there's only one God and therefore one way to him. He is the way, the truth and the life. And we can keep throwing gods at God to see if he's better than him better than those gods, and he will show that he is better every time. And that's confronting for us, but it's also comforting to know that there is truth, that there is one clear God who's asserting himself, and we can know that God. This passage tells us that he is the master of all creation, that he has given us life, and that he cares about the life that he has given us. And it also tells us that we will be answerable to him for that life because here's the second thing that we see in this passage. We see that God is the just judge. It's clear throughout that the plagues are very much the act of God's judgment. He makes that clear from the start. Uh, Exodus 7 verse 4, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Yes, God wants to rescue his people, but he also wants to judge Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now, we might find this a bit uncomfortable. 
We don't like the picture, the idea of God as a judging God. We want to imagine that he'll just kind of accept everything. That'd be so much easier for us if that was the case. And so sometimes we kind of reject this God who judges. But actually, if we remember what has happened here, we can see that God is perfectly just in judging the Egyptians. You see, the Egyptians have enslaved the Israelites for generations. We're told in chapter 1, they ruthlessly made the, people, made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. They have been horrific in the way they have treated the Israelites. They've even tried genocide. They've tried to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. This is an unspeakable evil. And God must act. He must do something about it. And we see here, we're reminded here in these passages that God does care. When he sees wrongdoing, he does something about it. God's people have been crying out for him to do something, and now they see it. God is the just judge. It's not just that he's just. There's something fitting in the way he responds. There's a kind of there's poetic justice here. Because every time, the punishment fits the crime. You'll notice at the start, for instance, that there's that strange story of uh, Aaron's staff turns into a, a snake and then the magicians turn their staff into snakes and then uh, Aaron's staff eats up the other snakes. What on earth is happening there? Well, it turns out that snakes were the symbol of Pharaoh's power. It was kind of the, the symbol of his kingly authority. And so what God is saying is, my snakes will eat up your snake. If you want to take me on, I'll show you my power. It'll be, be a little bit like someone likened it to, imagine going to the White House and you see a bald eagle, the symbol of American power, and you just rip it off. That's what God is doing. He's showing his power against them. Or well, think about the first plague with the Nile. They had used the Nile to drown the Hebrew baby boys. They had used it to kill people. And now God turns it to blood so that it can't provide the life that the Egyptians need. It's very fitting. Well, think about the plague of boils. We're told that the boils came from a brick kiln, kind of the oven that they would use to make bricks. Chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. It's clearly a miraculous sign with a very pointed message. You think about it, these ovens had been used by the Egyptians to oppress and torment God's people. When they saw those ovens, they thought of all the bricks they had to make and the, the millions of bricks that were made to build a pyramid or something like that. This was the symbol of their oppression and now God turns that symbol of oppression to oppress the Egyptians, to give them this discomfort. It's very fitting. But most of all, we see how fitting God's judgments are in the way he uncreates Pharaoh's world and, and takes away the order and shows Pharaoh that the consequences of messing with the creator God you see, right from the start, the book of Exodus has set up this conflict between God and Pharaoh as a spiritual one. You might remember in the first week, 
We focused on how in chapter 1, we're told that God's people were fruitful and multiplied and the land was filled. And I said how that was so similar to Genesis 1, where God says to Adam and Eve, the first humans, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, it was God's creation mandate, his purpose for all humanity. He wanted humanity to to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to rule the earth that God had given them and to enjoy its blessing. This was God's plan, his his purpose for humanity. And as we start Exodus 1, that's what's happening. God's people are experiencing and expressing God's pleasure. But then Pharaoh intervenes. Pharaoh tries to sabotage that. And in doing so, he's setting himself up against God. He's defying divine order. You see, God is a God of great order and structure. You read Genesis 1 and you see how beautifully he made the world. So the seas are in one place and the land in another. The seas are filled with life that humans can benefit from. There's plants and trees on the ground so that we can enjoy them as well. Everything is in its right place. It's all good and very good. But here we see that God throws that order out. He disrupts the order. Tim Chester writes, Pharaoh had become a kind of anti-creator. So now through the plagues, God unravels creation. He sends it into reverse. Pharaoh has set himself up against God's order and now God shows him what it's like when that order is taken away. Chester continues, water no longer brings life. Animals no longer serve human beings. Instead, they invade like armies. Light returns to darkness and life to the dust. Creation is heading back into its dark and chaotic state. Everything falls apart. Egypt is unmade. All around Pharaoh, the very fabric of his world is falling apart, disintegrating into chaos, darkness and death. God's judgment is coming to Pharaoh and it's actually perfectly fitting. He's actually giving Pharaoh exactly what he wanted. See, Pharaoh wanted a world without God in it. And so he had resisted the way God had created the world. He'd resisted God's order. And so God says, well, if you don't want me, then I'll give you what you want. But this is what it's like when my order is taken away. And I think that's even the case with Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh chooses to harden his heart. And so God gives him what he wants. He lets him go. I think this is a message for us as well. There is one true God, one great creator, and he has made each and every one of us. We are crafted by him and he's ordered that, he's structured us and he's designed us for a certain purpose and way, but it will only work if we follow him if we submit to his order, to his wisdom, if we follow the maker's design. That's the whole thing. And yet all through human history, we see that humans constantly try to defy God's design, set themselves up against the God of creation. This is the sin, the evil, the wrongdoing that's at the heart of humanity and it's characterised humanity since the fall. So God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he gave them this, he put this tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you might wonder what it's about. I think it's about basically God is saying, trust me to define right and wrong. This is the knowledge of good and evil. I understand, I know what is right and wrong and I know what's best for you. He's saying, trust the way I've structured you. Trust the way I've structured this world. Follow my order. Not as in orders as instructions, but follow the way I've structured this world. And then he warns, if you do this, if you, if you do try and take from that tree, then you'll die. Things will fall apart. Things won't work. But then, of course, in Genesis 3, we see the devil try to subvert this. First of all, he says that God's order can be defied without consequence. Chapter 3, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. It'll be fine. You don't need to worry about God's order. He won't do anything. It won't disrupt anything. And then he suggests that God's order is there only because God is restrictive and power-hungry. Genesis 3, 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying God doesn't want you to know this because he just wants to keep you under his control, under his thumb. You, you can do what you want. You can decide for yourself what is right or wrong. You can create your own world. You can start your own world order. So you can just develop whatever you want. You make your own world. You be the creator. That's tempting, isn't it? Like we all want that. We all want to be able to make our own uh, adventure, create our own adventure. We all want to be able to say, I define what's right and wrong. What's best for me is what I feel. That's what we want. But it's a lie. The devil is a liar, we're told in the Bible, and he constantly tries to destroy us, and this is how he tries to destroy us, by making us imagine that we can create our own world, that we can define right and wrong for ourselves, that we can defy God's order and it doesn't matter. Just look at Pharaoh. He tried to defy God's order and see how it finished up for him. And this is a warning for us as well because we are so tempted to defy God's order and we see it all around us. Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. He creates us, contrary or different or unique among all creation. We are made in God's image. We are made in the likeness of God himself. No other thing in creation has this great honour. It is a profound thing. There should be a sense of reverence as we look at each other because we have been made. There's something that reflects the divine in us. Imagine that. Think of the value we have. And yet in our culture, humanity, the value of life is completely undermined. We see it in war. We see it in people uh, desperately fighting for the right to destroy human life. We see it even just now with the vaccines, that there are countries that are poor that desperately need the vaccine, but rich countries have taken it for themselves. We don't value human life. God created us in his image so that we could rule over and look after his world, yet so often we pillage it. 
God created us in families. He, he built society on this profound and beautiful unit and we see that constantly undermined and people try to destroy that. God created us as male and female and yet we see even attempts to destroy that now. We see the world constantly trying to defy God's order and this can't go well. We see it with Pharaoh. We see it in our own world. It can't go well. In fact, I'd argue that we're already seeing that things are going badly because of it. What did God do to Pharaoh when he defied God's order? He gave him what he wanted. Pharaoh wanted a world without God in it. And so God gave him that. And Romans 1 tells us that that's what happens when we defy God's order. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. As we heard at the start, the plagues are an act of revelation. This is God showing himself to the world and he continues to show himself to all people. He shows his greatness, his power, his goodness to everyone everywhere. Romans 1 continues, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. But we suppress that truth. We resist that truth. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. We celebrate the world around us, but we ignore the one who made it. We enjoy the gift of creation of being humans, but we defy the one who made us. And we choose our own path, ignoring him. And as that happens, God gives us what we want. Verse 21, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. When we step away from God's order, when we ignore the one who made us, our thinking just goes off. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then God gives us up to what we want. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's what happens when we suppress the truth. Pharaoh suppresses the truth. Our world suppresses the truth. I suppress the truth. So I don't just see what I don't just see the evil around me. I see it in myself. I see how I'm boastful. I see how I'm a slanderer. I see how I try to invent ways of doing evil. The problem's not just out there. The problem's in here. God made me. God made you. God made us. And he made us perfectly, but sin has corrupted us. We choose that so often. And here God warns us that he will not just stand by. He will judge that ultimately. But he also warns with Pharaoh, he warns 
If we choose a world without God, he will give us what we want. It's a very sobering passage. There's something powerful and hopeful in it because we finally see God coming through for his people. But then we realise, hang on, I see myself in those that God comes against. I see a hard heart just like I see in Pharaoh. But shining amidst all of this is a beautiful picture, the vision of a gracious saviour. Yes, God is the one true God. Yes, God is the just judge who will deal with anyone who resists him, but he is also the gracious saviour. See, in the midst of these plagues, we see God isolate and protect his people. Uh, God's people lived in the land of Goshen, part of Egypt, and God keeps some of the plagues from them. So when there's flies sent throughout Egypt, they don't go to Goshen. When there's hail, it doesn't fall there. Even when there's darkness, it doesn't go in Goshen. Just imagine that. The whole land is cloaked in darkness, a darkness you can almost feel, and there's one little spot where it's light. But that is a miracle. And God makes it very clear that he's doing this to protect his people. He says to Pharaoh, I'll send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people into your houses and I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. God is making a difference. He's setting it apart. There's your people and there's my people. And if you're my people, then I will protect you. And that's the message for us as well. There is judgment for those who resist God, but there is protection for anyone who comes to God. You see, God doesn't enjoy judging. He will vindicate himself, but he won't do this vindictively. That makes sense. Ezekiel 18, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. That's what he invites Everyone to do. That's what he's trying to tell Pharaoh, turn and live. And he gives us this story so that we listen. So we see the reality of his authority, the reality of his judgment and the truth of his salvation. Because there is mercy in Jesus. See, God could have left us in our chaos and disorder but in mercy, in love, he restores order and brings life. And he does that by stepping into the chaos. That's what God does through Jesus. In Jesus, the God of Exodus steps into the world. And we see that, don't we? He is the creator, the master of all creation. Colossians 1, for by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is the one who brings order, and we see his power, his mastery over creation throughout his ministry. We see him turn the the storms into calm seas. We see him turn a, a little bit of bread into this mighty feast for his people. We see him give food from a, a plant, but also control that plant. And he shows us God's heart. You see, in Exodus, we see the God of creation turn the water into blood as a sign of judgment. What does Jesus do? He turns the water into wine 
as a sign of God's blessing, as a sign that God is here to bring life. That's what we see. This God of creation has come to his people to bring life. And yet in the face of this wonderful God's goodness, we see the dark depths of human sin. Humanity defies God's order, goes against the creator, and ultimately tries to destroy the creator. Kills Jesus, the one who holds all things together, is torn apart on the cross. And when he did, the order of creation was upturned. We're told in Matthew 25, one of the the biographies of Jesus, that when this happened, darkness covered the land. The earth shook and the rocks were split. It was like the plagues are happening again, as if creation was being unmade once more. But actually, it was a sign that a new creation was beginning. You see, Christ died to absorb God's judgment. God, the just judge, must judge our sin. But at the cross, our sin is taken from us and put onto Christ. The plagues that we deserve are put onto him. God's heart is not hard. It's soft towards us. And so he offers us this life. And we know that it happened because Christ rose again to begin something new. He satisfied divine justice. And now we can have new life coming under God's good rule. Once more, God's order is re-established. It's restored. We can be what we were made to be. Tim Chester writes, at the cross, the plagues fell on Jesus, the Son of God. At the cross, the maker came to be unmade so that we can be remade. And that's what God offers to us today if we come to him in humility. This passage is a very raw passage. That's supposed to be. The plagues are vivid, they're lurid, they're full on. And we're supposed to feel God's power here. We're supposed to feel how big he is. But he is our creator. He has total control over even us. And that we must answer to him ultimately. He is the just judge. But he's also the gracious saviour. And so if you're a Christian today already, be thankful for his grace. Be thankful that his heart was not hard but soft towards you and that he came to bring life. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, today is probably a very uncomfortable message. It's uncomfortable hearing about God's power, his judgment. It's uncomfortable to write about, let alone hear about. And it may be that you're feeling really uncomfortable today. You don't agree or you're just maybe there's a stirring within your heart that this is true. You don't want it to be, but you sense that maybe it is. I want to invite you to, to listen to that stirring. God challenged and confronted Pharaoh, but he kept pushing it away. He kept hardening his heart. Don't do the same. Every time you hear the truth of Jesus, you either get closer to him, your heart gets softer, or it becomes harder. Don't allow it to become hard. And if you're feeling uncomfortable today, be thankful because that's a sign 
that your heart isn't yet hard, that God is still at work and that he's beckoning you home. Your creator wants you to come and discover life with him under his rule. His order, his structure brings life. I pray that you'll come. Let's pray now. Father God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the reality of your power. You, We acknowledge you as the one true God. We acknowledge you as the one who made us, rules us, owns us. Lord, you've given us life. You've structured it and ordered it. And so we also want to confess that so often we try to defy that order. We try to create our own world. We imagine that we know what is best for us. But it's not true. Only you know what's best. Thank you that you sent Jesus into this chaos, into the disorder of this world to bring life. And we ask Jesus that you will come into the disorder of our hearts and bring life. You help us to say sorry. You help us to trust what Jesus has done so that we have forgiveness. You help us to trust you as Lord and to follow you. We thank you that you were unmade so that we could be made, remade in your image, that we could be like you. We could be made to be like we were always supposed to be. We thank you for that promise, that hope. Help us to receive it today in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.